HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're recording remotely today on Tuesday, July 21st, 2020, and we're here on the heritageradionetwork.org. Check us out, become a member, heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. So we've all been living through COVID, and especially in New York City, and uh, we took the time to talk about not only some of the the liquor license laws that, that have been modified, or updated uh, to help businesses during COVID, but also just we want to talk about some of the things that that we we wish could happen perhaps down the road. Um, it's, it's been a very trying hard, expecting a lot of restaurants and bars to close, and we're going to try to focus on the, the bar and restaurant on-premise uh, portion of the industry. So joining us, we're going to, we have uh, two guests. Um, so Max, please introduce yourself. Hey, Jimmy, Max Bookman here. I'm an attorney with Pazetsky and Bookman. We are alcohol license specialists that we focus on uh, alcohol licensing and other alcoholic beverage issues uh, all throughout New York City and throughout New York State. Great. And Anthony, our retailer. How you doing? Yes, uh, I'm Anthony Ramirez II. I am a uh, Bronx entrepreneur slash activist. I own the Bronx Beer Hall. Uh, from the Bronx, Taste of the Bronx, and a consulting company called Mainland Media. Okay, so bring it up to speed. Everyone's following the news. You know, after COVID happened, you know, it was not a good time for, for restaurants and, and bars. And New York State has responded very positively to, to help, you know, in, in ways that it can without jeopardizing people's safety. Um you know, Max, we know the things that have been happening. Why don't you give us, you know, up, bring us up to date on what the state has done to help restaurants and bars in this time? Yeah, so it's really been an unprecedented time. And I, uh, you know, it's been uh, an honor, but it's also been unfortunate. Uh, I've been able to have a front seat to, to see what and be involved in a little, a little bit and what the state has been doing. Uh, through our connection um, with the New York City Hospitality Alliance, the industry trade association that my firm represents here in New York City. And so we've been involved uh, with 
the state policymakers since day one of COVID to try to do some things that could, like you said, help the industry while keeping people safe. And so, uh, you know, during the initial period, there was, uh, you know, there wasn't much that could be done. And what I mean by that is, you know, back in April and May or early May before anything could really be opened, um, you know, there wasn't much that could be done in terms of on-premises. But one of the first things that um, the state agreed to, and this was something that we were strong proponents of, is alcohol to go. And so that uh, historically has not been something that an on-premises uh, licensee, and by that I mean a bar or a restaurant, was able to do with uh, wine or spirits. They always were able to sell uh, beer to go, little known fact, but uh, wine and spirits folks uh, could not sell to go. And uh, the state allowed us to do that. So they passed, uh, they had the liquor authority do some guidance, and um, that guidance allows on-premises licensees to sell alcohol to go. And that's been hugely popular. It's been helpful for the restaurants that and bars that did stay open uh, best they could to try to keep some people employed during the, the dark days of the virus in New York. And since then, uh, as May came along and then June, and now we're into July, as the state has started to begin its slow and cautious opening up again, um, there have been other uh, relaxations uh, of the laws that the state has um, has agreed to. And the most prominent of that, and which is in the news a lot lately, is uh, temporary extensions of your licensed premises. So normally in pre-COVID times, if you want to expand to an outdoor area near your, you know, contiguous with your restaurant um, that wasn't originally part of your liquor license, that's a few month process to get that approved. Uh, the state put in a very quick and easy process to allow for you to temporarily extend to outdoor areas. And the whole point of that was to allow places uh, that are primarily indoors to get some outdoor space for people to be able to uh, eat and drink um, in a socially distant setting. So those are just a few that uh, that we've been working on and uh, we hope to continue to work with uh, the city because there's a long, excuse me, the state city too. There's a long road ahead. Thank you, Max. We're going to dive deeper into it. And Anthony from the Bronx Beer Hall. Anthony, just tell us about uh, your experience during COVID uh, dealing with these modifications? Sure. Um, like Max said, uh, there were some dark days in the beginning, although days are still still pretty dark. We're, uh, you know, we are, we are um, as a beer hall, as he mentioned, we were always allowed to sell beer to go. Um, and But the, really the bulk of our business was for indoor dining, um, you know, people hanging out, drinking at the bar. So we had to we had to really pivot and adjust and figure out um, how to take our customers and, and meet them where they were. So we really focused on cans. We focused on beer to go. We focused on wine to go. Uh, we bought a slushy machine and, and came up with new recipes for slushies. Um, we've had to be creative. And you know, even though there is some um, outdoor seating, it doesn't. It's not the same capacity as our indoor seating. And, you know, with social distancing and mask wearing, I mean, it's nowhere near, um, I'd say we're at maybe 20%, 15% of what we were actually doing before COVID hit. Yeah. So now back to Max. So Max, what, what the reason we're doing this show today is that, you know, the, the state's response to COVID has been really great, as, as, as good as it could be. But it also made me realize that we've taken the genie out of the bottle. Um, what are some other, you know, alcohol improvements 
for businesses that have been on the table for a while that you that you guys have uh, been talking about? Oh boy. Well, we could do uh, we could talk forever about them, and so you'll just have to cut me off when you think I've gone on long enough. Uh, I would say that you know uh, you know what, what I'm about to say is uh, in connection with uh, sort of my own personal views. These aren't the views of the New York City Hospitality Alliance, who I represent. Although perhaps maybe one day they will be. Um, but you know uh, where we could start off is where we left off right before COVID. Uh, began. And what I mean by that is that the governor back in uh, January or February put out a very uh, aggressive um, reform plank in his state of the state uh, address, which seems like light years ago at this point, but it was only a few months ago. And uh, there were a few measures in there that basically, you know, they got dropped once COVID happened because everybody's attention, rightfully so, has been focused on uh, the immediacy of COVID. But we could, for starters, pick off pick up where uh, the governor left off there. And so getting into the specifics of that is uh, three-tier reform. I mean, I know a lot of your listeners are involved in the industry. They know well, for those who don't know, you know, three tiers are the three distribution tiers of the alcohol supply chain, the manufacturers in the one tier, the wholesalers in the middle tier, and then the retailers in the third tier, meaning bars, restaurants, or liquor stores, et cetera. And th- that division of three tiers uh, is long lasting and has origins uh, before prohibition ended. And it makes it very difficult for people in one tier to participate in businesses in other tiers. So if you want to be in the bar business, for example, you want to be in the beer hall business like Anthony is, you can't also, uh, with some, you know, there's some limited exceptions, but you can't also be in the brewery business. Um, and so that is a real limitation on bars and restaurants. Other states over the years have relaxed those limitations. New York really lags behind in that respect. And uh, what the governor had proposed was some modest changes to the three-tier law, which would allow really for um, investments from foreign countries where they don't have these, uh, these types of artificial distinctions into businesses in New York that so desperately need new investments. So for example, if you are uh, based in Europe and you have, you're the owner of a pub and that pub also uh, brews alcohol, which is legal in Europe, uh, it's very difficult for you to invest in a bar or a restaurant in New York. The governor's proposal would allow that to happen. Um, so that would be great to return to. Um, uh, another proposal that the governor had um, that got sort of you know, lost in the shuffle was uh, making it easier to have alcohol in movie theaters. This would help the whole industry. Um, and really, uh, and, and would help consumers too, because, uh, you know, right now in New York, it's very difficult to have a beer in a movie theater, whereas other states can. And then just to, just to tick off three, the third would be, uh, and this was not in the governor's uh, earlier proposal in the beginning of the year, but um, it's something that uh, there's a bill in Albany now to address, um, and something that I certainly support, is making permanent the alcohol-to-go rules that were... Uh, Put in place on a temporary basis for COVID. Uh, like I said, that's been hugely popular. The ability for bars or restaurants to uh, deliver um, or allow people to walk out with not just beer, which they've always been able to do, but uh, a mixed drink, uh, sangria, cocktail, um, uh, wine, um, uh, spirits even. I mean, that's all something that's been an additional source of revenue. Um, it's been very popular with consumers and uh, it should be made permanent. 
That's great, Max. And let's let's go from there because I remember my experience in, in, in New York 40 years ago was at the old school bars. You always had one side was the bar you could get a beer, and then opposite the bar was was a to-go to refrigerator with six packs. And I never quite understood that, but but now I do. So Anthony, since you're on, tell us about how do you think that being able to sell to-go cocktails, et cetera, would benefit your business long-term? Um, I mean, I think the whole, the introduction of to-go cocktails, like I said, I, I've been, beer was always allowed to go, but wine and our new slushies that have wine and, and sake in them weren't. Um, it's a huge boon to the business. We have a lot of people now that are coming in, or they were last week anyway, coming in um, to grab three or four to go. They don't even want a six pack. There's four friends. They're going someplace down the street. Um, they want to have a couple drinks before they go to pick up their Chinese food and head home. So it's kind of a no brainer. And um, recently, though, and we can talk a little bit about this, I know uh, the governor just passed something um, saying that anything, any alcohol that was sold to go had to be accompanied by food of some kind that you couldn't you could no longer just sell something to go which i think um is going to hurt a lot of places especially places that are just bars and i know um i was reading something online yesterday a bar tried to introduce something called cuomo chips that were just chips (laughs) and then after having a talk with the sla they heard okay we can't sell just chips we have to put a side of salsa or side of something to make it an actual meal so that that would be considered you know um uh, a, a dish to go, a food to go. And I think it's just an unnecessary burden, especially on bars that are really just bars, um, you know, and are just trying to stay in business for as long as they can through the pandemic. Well, Max, uh, I thought I always thought that all bars in New York State were supposed to have some food available to have the license. Yeah, so what mo- many folks don't realize is that every single bar in New York State that has a liquor license uh, submitted a food menu to the state liquor authority in order to get that license and is required to have food available. Now, if you're a bar, it does not have to be a restaurant level of food. So we're not talking entrees and three courses, but you did have to have what the liquor authority calls minimal food, which they define as something akin to soup, salads, or sandwiches or something uh, on that level. What, so that was always. What's different right, right. now... I, I... To interject, I did submit a menu when I got my liquor license. (laughs) (laughs) What's different now is that uh, instead of the food just having to be available, now people actually have to order it. (laughs) And that, you know, is actually a huge difference for bars that are, and maybe Anthony will be able to speak to this, for bars and other places that are, you know, we're making the careful calculations to reopen. And, you know, that, that, I mean, it's not just, you can't, opening back a bar after being closed for COVID is not as easy as just slinging open the doors and, and bring people in. There's, there's staff, there's food you got to order, there's alcohol. These are important economic calculations. And so uh, now being told that not just you have to have the food available, but in order to make that sale, uh, people have, and this is for on-premises consumption, in order for people to come to the bar, and, 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 you know, if you have outdoor area and drink, you have to sell them food at the same time really is a step in the wrong direction. It's a, it's, it's sort of a backward step and it doesn't make a whole lot of policy sense. And so we really are urging the governor to, to reconsider that new rule that he announced and had, and the state liquor authority went along with, which, um, really took everybody in the industry by surprise and is a step back from what 
has historically been the rule, which is, yes, you have to have food available, but if someone wants to come in on a hot summer day and have a beer and they don't want to have, you know, uh, French fries with that beer, they shouldn't have to. Max, um, why, why did the governor take that step back? I understand that, like, for an example, in New York City, so most of the alcohol laws you're talking about are state regulated, but in New York City, they're allowing the open restaurants, meaning restaurants can put their tables on the sidewalks and, and the streets. Um, is that a reason, is, is the complications of dealing with the city and all that, is that a reason why he may have uh, required food with every order? Well, you, know, you don't need to be a, a, a New York State political guru to know that there is a not so functional relationship between personal relationship between the governor and, of New York and the mayor of New York. And that always is sort of floating in the background of, of, of everything we see where you have an interface between the city and the state. Um, you know, in terms of why you know, did the governor do this? Um, you know, I wish I knew the answer. You know, I mean, as I said, in representing the Hospitality Alliance, we're very involved with, uh, on, you know, on a political level with the governor's people, and, and we didn't see this coming. Um, you know, what I will say, though, is that, you know, in, in asking the governor to reconsider this, is that you know, from the data that we're getting, there's a between 90 and 95 percent compliance rate in New York City with the social distancing guidelines, with the reopening guidelines, with all the alcohol rules. That's an incredible compliance rate for a program that was basically just thrown together over the course of, you know, a, a few weeks. And so, yes, there are a few sort of um, uh, you know, very sort of uh, obvious violators out there. And you, we've all seen the, the news reports and the videos. And, you know, we saw over the weekend, you know, in Astoria was an example, but that's really, really the exception and not the rule. And so, you know, what we would urge the governor to, you know, uh, to think about is that, you know, bars and restaurants in New York City, they relied on the guidance that the guidelines that we were given about a month ago in order to reopen both at the city and the state level and we are largely complying with them and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense for if someone's in yonkers uh that they can go inside a bar or a restaurant uh and have indoor dining there where it's legal but they can't walk a few blocks south to the bronx uh and go into uh anthony's place and uh, and have uh, you know and, and and go inside there, even though the Bronx has met the same exact uh, reopening metrics for phase three and phase four as the rest of the the state has. Yeah, and now let's go. Um, I think we can bring Paul and Paul Ramirez also just joined. Paul, hey. um, what what what's your take on? We're we're going to just kind of cover this now and then. The second half of the show, we're going to go to dreaming of what we what we really want to happen in the future. But Paul, um, what's your take on how things are going now, and and what could help you out right now? Well, I mean, you know, I want to echo all of Anthony's uh, statements. I mean, at the end of the day, like uh, you know, having indoor seating would be ultra helpful for us. Um, but um, we have been complying. I'm, I'm sure we're at 95 to 100 percent in terms of compliance on how on all of the rules that the SLA has set forth in the past uh, two months. But um, how do we make sure that, um, you know, that, that we stay that way when you have you have things coming in at, you know, 12 o'clock. 12:48 a.m. that are expected to be implemented uh, the day the moment you open your doors. Um, so, 
I mean, right now, uh, if we could have more the ability to be able to say, hey, I don't have to sell you a food item while you're grabbing this beer and walking away. Like we're, you know, it, we're, we're in a unique situation where we're inside of a, a 80 year old historically landmark retail market. So we're essentially functioning as the beer section in a supermarket. We're a glorified bottle shop in a glorified supermarket. And um, what if people just want to grab a beer and walk around and do their shopping while they're with us? You know, we, 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 we don't want to change that. You know, we want them to be able to say, hey, you know what? You're comfortable within this space to consume while you're shopping. And um, that doesn't take away. Or you're comfortable within this space to consume at the end of my bar because there's nobody else here today. Um, and you have your shopping bags and you're literally walking out the door. So, you know, yeah. we, we don't... And, go ahead. And I'm, Paul, I, I'm pretty sure that since that was already on your license, and Max will correct me, if it was already on your license, it's still okay. I think the change is that when restaurants have been able to s serve on streets that they didn't have, you know, on their original license. Is that what the change is, Max? Well, that, it's complicated. Yeah, I mean, it, it's complicated, Jimmy. So, I mean, you know, yes, there have been programs like the one in, in New York City to do what they call open streets, where you could, through a very quick and easy application process, be allowed to use portions of the public sidewalk and even the roadway for outdoor seating. And they worked well with the liquor authority on that. That's true. And so there are changes in that respect. But with the, what, you know, the most recent announcements that we've been getting from the governor are actually restricts things that you were previously allowed to do. So as Anthony has mentioned a few times, and I have as well, beer to go has something that's always been allowed. You've always been allowed to do it and you didn't need to sell it with food in order to, for people to come in and grab a drink and go. And this is especially important for bottle shops that have on-premises licenses. Now, under the governor's new guidance, if someone wants to buy beer to go, they have to buy it with a food item. So that's rolling back what the law has always allowed. And you know, that's a, a real problem for a lot of people. You know, what? when you talk about the genie in the bottle, I mean, it seemed that any changes in the state liquor authority never happened and you know going back governor cuomo did a great job 2012 and 2014 rolling out all those craft beverage reforms and i know you guys have been at the forefront of it um how can things happen so fast now during an emergency and you know how can we be more proactive about making more positive improvements to help our hospitality businesses after covid well, it's a great question, and it starts with returning to the normal legislative process. And so the governor does deserve a lot of uh, kudos and respect for uh, what he's done with New York and how in terms of, of COVID and getting us to the position we're in now. Sometimes it feels like we're in the eye of a hurricane here in New York, where at least here there's some calm, but the rest of the country uh, is, is going in the wrong direction. So he, he deserves a lot of credit, but that has been... Um, done primarily through emergency executive orders, which are uh, which is a power that the governor has been given by the state legislature long ago, um, which which you know, allows for in emergency situations the governor to just announce things that become binding for the duration of the emergency. And the issue is that this type of emergency power. It was never imagined that it would be used this extensively and last for so long. The emergency powers, you know, types of executive orders that, you know, that of the past were things like, you know, there was a hurricane 
And, you know, and so for a week, the governor needs to require some sort of some, some sort of special things to happen or God forbid, an act of terrorism and we need a quick emergency response. It was never imagined that for months or even years, perhaps we would be living under a quote emergency and that the governor would basically be able to regulate businesses by executive order. So we need to return to normal legislation. If we're going to be living with COVID for the next months or years, even in some form, then we have to recognize that that's. That's here to stay, and we need to go back to uh, in in Albany uh, the the legislature passing laws. Um, if the liquor authority or other government government agencies want to do rules, there's a a process for that where people are given advance notice. They have an opportunity to comment. The government agency has to respond to comments, and this would really cut down on the kind of problems that Anthony alluded to, where you go to sleep one night. And you wake up in the morning and you check Twitter or you check the news and suddenly there's a new requirement in place that you have, you know, 10 minutes to uh, to address or you can't open. Um, they really have we have to put an end to that. And that's really important for bars and restaurants because it's, bars and restaurants are such a labor intensive industry, such an overhead intensive industry. There's no room for uh, changing rules on a dime. Uh, without really impacting our industry. And that's especially important now because this is an industry that is really fighting to survive, um, especially in New York City, where we've not been allowed to reopen uh, indoors. We're fighting to survive. We have bars and restaurants that are fighting for their businesses, fighting for their staff and their employees to keep their jobs. And we need some more predictability back in the process so that we can make plans and plan accordingly. And the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, uh, we had a phased approach where we were told in advance that, you know, phase two, there'd be some outdoor dining. Then come phase three, there'd be indoor dining. And that's been true in the rest of the state. And we had every reason to expect that to be true in New York. And then, but, but then lo and behold, New York meets the criteria, New York City meets the criteria for phase three and then phase four. And yet we're told that bars and restaurants are not allowed to reopen in New York City, even though they're, they're, they are in the rest of the state under phase three and phase four. Um, and so now we don't know, we don't know now when we're going to be allowed to reopen indoors. And we need to go back to some sort of objective standards, some criteria that we can look to and say, okay, when the following things happen, when the following metrics are met, we will be allowed to reopen. We're just not seeing that right now. And that's a problem. That's, that's great, Max. And you know, I totally get it. If if I had a place that was indoor seating only, I, I wouldn't be, I would just wait this out. I wouldn't even be opening. But we're going to take a short break. We're going to be back in a, in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. We're going to talk about dreams and, and, and what we wish for in the state alcohol laws on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Why Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including 11 Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country. Visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage 
Radio Network. Check us out, heritageradionetwork.org. Okay, um, we're talking about changing liquor licenses in New York State. Uh, what started with COVID is open the genie in the bottle, and now we're talking about what what could be uh, one day that will help the whole industry. Uh, well, first of all, what we're drinking, Max, what, what are you drinking, buddy? So I love City Swiggers. It's a wonderful beer shop down the street from me on 86th Street in Manhattan. Um, I don't let them know when I come in that I'm a liquor lawyer. I like to be incognito, but they're, they're great there. Lindsay, who works there, they're not a client, but uh, I wish they were. They're wonderful people. And so I'm always getting something new and interesting there. Today I picked up from Gesto Brewery out in uh, Illinois. They have a, a sour Flanders red. Sours are something that I know is a big popular wave. I've been riding it, and um, I love the acidity. And I, what I love particularly about this beer is that a lot of the sours are very fruity, um, which I don't like. This one is basically uh, all acid, no fruit, and um, and for someone who likes acidity like me, it's it's excellent. That that's great. And I'm drinking a, a Millstone Brewery from Poughkeepsie, a simple pale ale that they sent me. Um, so Anthony, what are you drinking? And then I know you you, you have your first question uh, for Max about what could be and what should be after COVID to help businesses. Uh, so um, what I'm drinking, I'm drinking, uh, and this is not to be uh, just self-promoting, but I'm actually drinking Cocoa Cherry Mango Sour, uh, which uh, the Beer Hall made in collaboration with Uptown Beer Society, Gun Hill Brewery, um, Beer Culture, and Delicioso Coco Helado. So another sour, like Max over here, um, except mine at the end has a has a real, has a back end of uh uh, cocoa and mango that's really prominent and and really strong perfect for this incredibly disgustingly hot summer day <laughs> even i would drink that <laughs> <laughs> i'll get you one max i'll get one for you <laughs> all right i'll, I'll hold you to it <laughs> so, all right so anthony what 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 do, what do you need in the future to, to make your business better so I need a couple things, but I'm going to start with a really what I think is a simple ask, and that's to keep the to-go beer, wine, um, liquor ongoing. So, so, so to keep it going for as long as possible, forever, and um, allow customers to come and grab drinks, uh, mixed drinks to go whenever they want to. Okay. So Max, we know that there's a special relationship in New York State with uh, the independent package and wine and liquor stores. And... So tell us, how could this continue, or would it continue, uh, what Anthony asked about? Jimmy, you're a wise man. That's just where I was about to go. So alcohol to go has been an extremely helpful tool for bars and restaurants navigating COVID. Consumers love it. And so naturally, people want to see it extended. And in fact, there's two bills in Albany right now that, if passed, would do just that. Although the bills operate slightly differently. And I think there's one from an industry perspective that we as an on-premises industry need to get behind, even though it doesn't give us everything we want. And what I mean by that is one of the bills would allow to go, but only for mixed drinks, wine, beer, but not full sealed bottles of wine, not full sealed bottles of spirits. It would only be if, uh, you know, in cups or if it's beer, it could be in cans. But, you know, basically one off drinks to go, not the full sealed bottles of wine and spirits. That's the bill I think we ought to all get behind. And that's because the other one, as well intentioned as it is, would allow us to continue selling the full sealed bottles of wine and spirits as well, 
But from a political perspective, that's dead on arrival. At least that's my opinion. And you're going to hear a lot of other folks say the same thing. And that's because of what you said, Jimmy, the package stores. Anybody who knows anything about the State Liquor Authority knows that it's incredibly difficult to get a package store license. There's a very tough process to get one. And once you have one, it's extremely valuable to keep. And bars and restaurants will never be allowed to, uh, on a political level, uh, basically become package stores and, and either at, at their store or online start selling uh, sealed bottles of wine and spirits to go. Uh, that basically would completely undercut the business model of the package stores. The package stores are generally mom and pop businesses that are well represented in the halls of Albany. And uh, they've already come out in, in great opposition to that bill. So I think a really good compromise is let them keep the bottles of wine and spirits, but let bars and restaurants continue to do the mixed drinks, the single cups of wine, of, of cocktails sangria, things like that, because that's really not taking away business from the package stores anyway. And from what my clients tell me, uh, that's really uh, that's really what customers are looking for anyway. Very few customers are coming into a bar or restaurant looking to buy uh, a, a big, you know, uh, sealed bottle of liquor. Yeah. And they, uh, the restaurants can also sell those, could sell those drinks. The restaurants could also sell those drinks to go with food. And also, I want to give a shout out. I'm a big fan of New York State's the independent wine and liquor stores. I think it's another reason that we have such a wide diversity of, of wine and, and, you know, small spirits companies and, and hard cider. So I'm, I, I think that I really love that system. So we're not going to undermine that. Now we'll go to the next question. So Paul Ramirez Paul, what, what's something that you wish would happen um, or your dream for alcohol licenses in New York State? I mean, oh, the open container laws, you know, that's a, that's a big deal for us. You know, uh, Arthur Avenue is a foodie neighborhood, and in it being a foodie neighborhood, people want to be able to grab something and go down the block and have fresh oysters, fresh clams. Um, you know, they, they obviously, they know the good spot to get beer, a.k.a. the Bronx Beer Hall, um, but they want to spread that around, you know, and we, and we definitely see the benefit. It's mutually beneficial for um, people to enjoy a little bit of everything that Arthur Avenue has to offer and to be prohibited from walking outside with a can of beer or a glass of beer just because, you know, because uh, the government says so is uh, it's a big problem, I think. So, Max, what, what's your answer to that? I, I, I also will ask about his, some historical, but what's your answer to that? You go to cities like New Orleans and you go to cities like uh, Nevada, you know, Vegas, and like, it's all good. Why is it all good there and not all good in New York? I mean, you walk around Yankee Stadium during, uh, uh, during the season and it's all good for patrons of the stadium, but not for the regular folks that are just hanging out in front of their house. Paul, you're exactly, Paul, you're exactly right. And there's a lot of pearl clutching when it comes to talk about open containers. People say, you know, drinking in public, uh, you know, how could it be? You know, how, you know, how immoral? And, you know, the, and the morality issue really is, is what underlies the open container laws. It dates back to alcohol laws that existed uh, for centuries, uh, long before prohibition, and then back after prohibition ended. The problem is, is that a lot of people in New York associate open container drinking with public drunkenness and disorder. And the two are entirely uh, different. I think, you know, if you really put your mind to it, and if you look at, you know, like you said, Paul, I mean, open container drinking is not a foreign crazy concept. We have it here in the United States, not only in New Orleans and in Vegas, but in a number of other 
municipalities across uh, the United States and around the world. So it's not a crazy concept. And if you look at it, you'll see that people are fully capable of responsibly consuming alcohol in public while they walk home from work, uh, while they uh, go from place to place, uh, just like they do if they're uh, indoors. So I think it's something that makes a lot of sense. If it's ever going to happen uh, in New York, then I do think, though, that restaurants and bars, uh, the places that, that and, and beer shops and the places that sell the alcohol will have to step up to the plate when it comes to committing to the powers that be that we're not going to turn the sidewalks in front of our businesses into disorderly places. And you've seen some of that uh, before the outdoor seating was approved, where people were understandably looking for a place to drink. There was no outdoor seating anywhere. So they were taking alcohol to go and they were drinking on the streets. And, you know, there's a difference between, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, one person sipping a beer on the street and having a huge party on the street where people can't walk by, parents with children can't get their strollers by. So there is a balance to, that needs to be struck there. But if bars and restaurants can establish that we can responsibly monitor our sidewalks to make sure that drinking is done in a responsible way, then I think folks uh, in Albany really ought to be able to open to their eyes to the fact that uh, open container drinking is not a, uh, an exotic concept. So, so, Max, one possible answer, for, especially for what Paul said, is that perhaps, mo- mo- like these open restaurant streets, perhaps there are more streets and park areas that a business association or a group of neighborhood restaurant owners could somehow work with and allow people to have, be, have their drinks there outdoors, something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, for starters, I mean... Uh, so right now, because of COVID, and this is something that I applaud, um, the city of New York, in addition to the open streets, which everybody knows about, has, has gone further on a number of streets and closed the whole streets down um, during periods of time, mostly on the weekends, to allow for even more outdoor dining and more outdoor um, people getting together. And if we were to look to expand that beyond just those, those streets, we should look to plazas. Uh, other open spaces throughout the city where a business improvement district or a community board can get together and say, in this area, uh, we are going to allow people to drink responsibly out in the open. To me, it's a no-brainer. Okay. So let, let, now let me change this. So uh, I want to go back. So one reason I, I've thought about the open container law is that a number of years ago, I read a, a New York Times article, and it said that in the 70s until 1979, it was okay for a typical worker, it said the typical Con Edison worker, to sit on a park bench and enjoy a beer with his lunch. And in 1979, uh, under Mayor Koch, that became no longer allowed. One reason was, as you said, it was to discourage hippies and radicals from, you know, whatever, having b- bad behavior. But you want to comment on that? Like, like, so how far could we go? Like, it seems that a lot of things have been decriminalized in the last couple of years. Like, maybe I can smoke a joint on a certain street. Maybe I can have a beer quietly on a stoop. Where are we at with that? Well, it's interesting you say that because, you know, at the state level, there actually is no 
state open container law. So uh, it's all done in the various municipalities. So if a town wanted to, or a city wanted to, today they could pass a law that allows for open container drinking under whatever circumstances that they think is appropriate. And that would be illegal, excuse me, that would be legal immediately. There's no state law that prohibits it. So uh, we have a very progressive city council um, that has looked to undo a lot of the historical wrongs of the past. And I don't think it comes as a surprise to anybody to learn, just like in the context of marijuana, that in some places in New York City, it's already basically legal to have open container drinking. And you see that some places on social media, where in some of the places in Manhattan, uh, where there, uh, you know, in Central Park, for example, you've seen crowds of people, you know, drinking wine, you know, in parks, and there's been no enforcement. But then if you go into communities of color, you see a starkly different picture. And so it is something that the city council ought to take a look at, just as they've taken a look at a number of other um, uh, laws that, that regulate conduct and regulate substances that have their origins, at least in part, in uh, inequity and inequality. Yeah. And um, Paul or Anthony, do you have another question, something else that you think would be um, beneficial to the restaurant and bar industry? Uh, I have a quick one, and it's not specific. I mean, Max, you, you're the lawyer. You know a lot more than I knew about this. But um, we uh, recently, you know, uh, were got a, approved by UPS to begin shipping um, beer to different states. So not only within New York, but across the U.S. Um, not every state, because apparently some were just not allowed to ship to. Um, and it seemed like a really arduous task and, and, and difficult for reasons that I don't understand. So, you know, if we're continuing these COVID times and, and, and continuing, you know, running businesses, finding out new ways to run our business, um, I think it would be one way to, to, to help increase revenue would be to move online and to start finding customers, not only within our communities, but outside of our communities and outside of New York State. Can you talk a little bit about the possibility of that becoming easier or why it's so difficult? Yeah, so, I mean, it's a great question you raise. And one of the real problems that businesses like yours face when they want to start going national is the balkanization of alcohol laws throughout the country. And what I mean by that is that when prohibition ended in 1933 and the 21st Amendment was passed, it gave states the authority to regulate alcohol in a way that other commodities like milk or lettuce or whatever could never be regulated. And so as a result, we have 50 states plus the District of Columbia. We have 51 different sets of alcohol laws. So you may uh, be able to ship out you know, beer, uh, for example, to uh, another state and have that be totally legal under New York's laws, but it may not be legal under the laws of the state where your customer lives. And so you really have to become an expert in 51 different sets of laws in order to operate on a fully national platform. And that's really a massive barrier for all but the, the most complex and largest of businesses that are able to hire teams of lawyers in every state to figure out the alcohol laws. I will say, though, that at least as far as shipping you know, within New York is concerned, um, before this new rule that said you had to sell beer with, um, uh, with food, uh, you are able to ship via UPS or any other common carrier beer to anybody in New York, as long as you meet a few other requirements. 
And, uh, you know, hopefully once this food limitation is removed, you'll be able to go back to doing that again. Great. And I, I want to hit you with the doozy because it's, it's been the question I've always wanted to ask and talk about in public. And again, I feel like now is a good time to talk about it. When I was when I turned 18 in the early 80s, the drinking age, most states in America was 18 and it gradually went up by 1985 to 21. Um, what, what, the biggest change that I saw, I remember when I went started college, and I went to Columbia, so did Anthony. When I started at college then, there were very friendly uh, bars where college students could go, and my Friday night was, oh, I, might, I bought a few beers, maybe there was a band, I would go home and go to sleep. And, and after the drinking age went to 21, I had taken some time off from school, and I went back, and a typical Friday night was 10 people packed into a dorm room doing ecstasy. All I've seen since the drinking age has gone up is the increase in, um, you know, kind of manufactured drugs like ecstasy or crystal meth. And also the whole movement of legalizing marijuana. Now, if why isn't there a movement to bring the drinking age to 18, at least for beer and wine? And that's, that's a whole big issue. But I, I do feel that since I had it when I was younger... I never. I understand why it changed, but I still don't understand why it can't go back to 18. Which that is a big issue, but it's one that I've also given a lot of thought to. And so this is my personal opinion, and I think a lot of people share it. Uh, the 21 drinking age is a failed policy. I mean, the idea behind the 21 drinking age was to reduce the amount of youth that are drinking. And does anybody really think that people under the age of 21 have stopped drinking in any sort of uh, material way uh, since the, the raising of the age to 21. Um, in fact, the exact opposite has happened. Instead of responsible drinking practices, and if you talk to folks and you just you know, gave your story, and there's a lot of other stories like that, if you talk to folks who were in college back when the drinking age was 18, you heard a lot of stories about drinking a few beers, maybe some wine. Uh, now, the focus, and at least, I mean, in, in drinking, you talked about drugs, but at least the drinking focus on college campuses today has shifted to hard alcohol, shots, pre-gaming, uh, getting as drunk as possible, as quickly as possible. And the real shame here is that this has happened before. If you look, you know, history is often teaches us lessons. If you look to history, we could have seen this coming. And what I'm talking about is if you look at what happened during Prohibition, and I've become somewhat of a student of prohibition, uh, given uh, the field that I practiced in and how so much of our alcohol laws today uh, come from that period between 1919 and 1933 when alcohol was made illegal. Um, if you look at prohibition, when, when nobody could drink alcohol, what you saw was the shift, just like you see on college campuses, from beer to spirits. And that's no coincidence. The reason for that is because uh, it, it's fairly obvious when you think of it. Uh, beer is, gets you less drunk, less quick. It's harder to transport. It's heavier. It's harder to conceal. And spirits, on the other hand, the higher alcohol content gets you drunk much faster, uh, much uh, easier to hide, much easier to transport. You can take shots of it. And that's why you saw the incredibly unhealthy drinking habits that came to light during the prohibition, during the 20s, when you saw the rise of of people drinking in very unhealthy ways with a focus on spirits. And, you know, the same thing has happened on college campuses today. So it's a failed policy. 
And it's something that policymakers, unfortunately, this is really not on the tip of, of, of anyone's mind, but it really ought to be something that people to consider because we're not serving our young people well by telling them that you can't have a drink until you turn 21. In fact, it's just really reminiscent, and it's, this is—I mean—it's a—it's a, a relic of the time that the—that you know the rate, the 21 drinking age is a relic of its time. But if you look at the time period when it was raised to 21, that was the just say no times, where we the, the you know the policies uh, were about drugs and alcohol were just don't do it, and everybody knows now that that doesn't work, doesn't work with marijuana, doesn't work with with sex, it doesn't work with alcohol, and we ought to be giving our young people. Uh, a more realistic view towards responsible alcohol consumption. And part of that starts with uh, making the drinking age more appropriate age. That's a really good point, Max. And Anthony or Paul, does anyone weigh in? And just to, just to be clear, all of us are responsible operators. We card everyone. We, have, we all follow the 21 and over drinking law. We're not advocating to serve people under 21. But we do think that I think that long-term for the industry, for everything, hospitality, restaurant, bars, and the New York State craft brewing industry, I, I think that we would all be served better by having a drinking age of 18. Um, Paul or Anthony, do you want to weigh in on maybe uh, you know, drinking ages in other countries or something before we close out? I mean, yeah. You know, um, the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico are both... Uh, properties of the U.S., you know, and, and they are the only two states where 18 is actual legal for drinking. And obviously we've, uh, we're of Puerto Rican descent and we've been to Puerto Rico a bunch of times and nobody's ever had a problem. You can be, you know, 16 and they're like, oh, okay, no problem. You know, here, there you go. And the idea, I think, is it's like you, you learn earlier, you understand, you know, like we're, we're by Fordham University now. And while our license is beer, wine, cider, sake, you name it, um, it's not hard liquor. So with it not being hard liquor, we have less of a problem dealing with 18 to 20 year olds because they're not trying to knock down our door because they're trying to get as messed up as they can as fast as possible. And that says something just period about the culture overall, right? Like if you had learned at some point earlier in your life to appreciate a glass of, of wine or appreciate a glass of, um, of beer, you wouldn't be so, um, you wouldn't be so crazed to, to go binge drinking and just, just to get fucked up, you know? And like, that's, I think that that's like, um, Max just said, it does a great disservice. And, and so did you, it does a great disservice to our, to our country and to people overall. You go anywhere abroad, you know, you go into, into Europe and, and it's, it's socially, social drinking for, for a younger, for a younger audience is generally accepted, especially in the presence of family or presence of, of parents. Um, nobody even blinks an eye. You know, if there's like a 16 year old who says they're going to have a beer, but they're sitting with their parents, nobody, nobody bothers to say, oh, wait, we can't do that. Um, and I, I mean, I think, you know, like you said, Jimmy, I don't know if it leads to crystal meth automatically, but <laughs> it definitely leads to people trying to find other ways to experience, uh, uh, you know, the quote unquote high as opposed to understanding what how to how to be social and being, you know, drinking drinking just to be chill as opposed to um, drinking, you know, binge drinking just to be as, you know, as fucked up as you possibly can. Yeah, and I, I'm a dad and my daughter's about to turn 18. And, and your biggest fear is that you don't you wish they could just go out to a, a cafe and have a glass of wine with their friends. You know, at the end of the day, they have to go somewhere, you know, perhaps an illegal party or something where they and the big question is, oh, don't drink something 
that that's not from a sealed container because because no one knows what that is. So there's a lot of issues with this. But obviously we know that at least people 18 to 20 are out there socializing, and and we I do think that should be something that should be added to an agenda, uh, if not this month, something that we can talk about again. So Anthony, anything to wrap it up? Yeah, I wanted to say uh, one, um, you know, thanks for having us. Obviously, I think this is a really um, uh, important discussion and you know we could probably talk for another two hours about it um but max i learned a lot just listening to um you know everything you had to say about about the history of of law of liquor laws in new york and in the u.s um i also learned that when i was 18 i didn't really like long island iced teas apparently i just was trying to get as drunk as possible <laughs> um, so so yeah you know i, I think um i think there is um that you know, obviously, the pandemic, COVID, is it's a every business in New York, every body in New York took a huge hit. Um, you know, being forced not to socialize, businesses being forced to close. But I think that there are ways we can move forward and get something positive out of this, and hopefully, that um, shows in some reform of the state alcohol laws. Great, thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Paul and Max. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, just. I want to echo what was just said. Thank you for having us. This is a conversation that uh, should not just be happening here, but should be happening uh, in, with policymakers in City Hall and in Albany. And it has been to some extent. I mean, we've been very pleased with uh, some of the uh, quick and thoughtful policies that have been coming out of the New York City Hall and Albany. But I think the important thing to recognize, and a lot of policymakers do, and I wish more would, is that our bars, our restaurants are absolutely critical, not only to our city's economy, not only to employment, but they're critical to what makes New York, New York. And New York is never going to be New York again if our bars and restaurants not, you know, don't come back. And there's a lot of people right now that are really worried about not being able to come back. And so it's very important for policymakers, any of them who are listening to this show, to understand that we need bold, uh, creative, out-of-the-box thinking in order to um, get our uh, restaurants and bars uh, back on their feet. Great. Well, thanks so much again, Max and Anthony and Paul. Again, I give a big shout out for um, Drink Beer at 18, perhaps, and definitely keeping, uh, you know, allowing more restaurants and and bars to be serving on on streets and other public public properties because, let's be frank about it, Drinking alcohol, socializing, eating meals, this this is the fabric of our lives in New York, and we definitely want the businesses to survive, come back, and thrive. So thanks again to everyone. Um, Dylan Hoyer, our producer, Matt Patterson, head engineer. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks, Anthony, Paul, and Max. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization 
driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.